permanence, permanence is a heavy word. Permanence. Is it a good or a bad thing? Of course, it depends largely upon your circumstances. Is permanence a good thing or a bad thing? In a sweet season of life, permanence is wonderful. In a sweet season of life, we imagine, can I hit a a, a freeze button, a pause button, and and get my life to be like this forever? When you're in those moments, and you know this is a a good day, this is a sweet time, you want to capture them and you want to stay in them forever, the permanence of that moment. But in difficult times of life, in in, in hardship, in adversity, permanence is, is a frightening thing. It evicts within us a serious fear. Is this going to be this way forever? Is there no escape from this feeling, from this context? It's gripping and it's dread-filled. Permanence. Of course, permanence is good or bad depending upon the object to whom we are referring to. In a world of ever-shifting sand, the theology that the Lord is permanent in His nature. He's perfect in the fullness of who He is and all of His attributes. He's permanent. This theological truth of who God is impacts our life. It orients for us the psalmist's life in Psalm chapter 119. As we keep walking strophe by strophe, poetic letter through poetic letter, He comes now to the permanence of God. At the very end of this strophe, he's going to speak about the permanence of the Word of the Lord. The Word of God has a permanent impact because He is permanent. The eternality of God and His permanence, it shapes the psalmist in a season of adversity in three particular anchored ways. Three particular anchored ways. As we walk through our text this morning, we'll notice first that that it gives purpose in the face of pain. Purpose in the face of pain. It's the permanence of the Lord that gives the psalmist purpose in the face of pain and adversity that he's facing in life, which to what we've seen could be the very last trial he faces on this earth. He has purpose in the midst of it. We're going to talk about two ways in which he has purpose. Then as we keep continuing on through this little strophe that is resh, we'll notice the, the perseverance that he maintains in the face of persecution. It's the permanence of the Lord that anchors the psalmist to persevere in the face of persecution. And so we pray likewise as a church, Lord, would you anchor that in our lives, individually as saints and as a corporate body? Would you make us a persevering congregation, ever more so in the face of potential adversity? But also we'll notice finally as we come to the final verse of this strophe, that it's the permanence of the Lord that anchors him to respond with love out of the covenant loyal love he's he's knows in relationship with the Lord. The only reasonable response he has in his life is faithfully abiding in the Word of God. Nothing else is reasonable because of the great and permanent Lord and the covenant relationship he has. So let's begin first as we look, praying to God, would he bring within us an understanding that the permanence, his permanence, the awareness of his permanence ought to impact our lives in such a great way that first and foremost, the permanence of the Lord reminds us that He has purpose for us in the face of pain. The Lord reminds us that He has purpose for us in the face of pain. Now, before I read verse 153 through 156, we'll make applications on the first portion of every verse and the last portion. But in reality, we could make 
the topic of pain a 22-week series in itself, couldn't we? We could make this a discussion point that we ride on through all of Scripture. We could do a systematic study and notice pain and suffering in the world and how the Lord works through it and how does it exist. And we've touched on it several times because the Scriptures, Psalm 119, we've been forced to deal with it on a consistent basis. We have a man whose his life is committed in the context of relationship with the Lord. His, his life is woven consistently with the truth of walking in the way of God. And yet it's a man who, in the face of the world, in the eyes of the world, is despised, rejected, as others are attempting to end his life. But for our sake, as we look at this particular strophe, we'll notice, church family, two particular components that the Lord works through our life in seasons of grief and hurt and adversity and pain. So let's read first together, 153 through 156. The psalmist says to the Lord, Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I did not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. What do we see the Lord working in us and working in the psalmist to the face of pain? He purposes persistent prayer. He purposes first and foremost in our life and in seasons of pain and adversity, he desires to purpose within us a growth in persistent prayer. Three times the psalmist asked here, in the very first two lines, the very first two verses of this psalm, he says, look on my affliction and deliver me. And then in 154, plead my cause and redeem me, give me life. Three different times he's addressed his circumstance of hardship, right here at the very beginning of the strophe. Three different times he's made specific requests to Yahweh to deliver him from the pain he finds himself in. Persistently, he prays to the Lord. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, makes three prayer requests as well to God. He, he seeks Yahweh, he seeks the Lord, and he asks that this thorn in the flesh that's in his life, you can write down the reference in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's enduring this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, he calls it, that's steering him and impacting his effectiveness in ministry. And he asks three times to the Lord to take it away. He pleads persistently in prayer that the Lord would take this away. He calls it a, a messenger of Satan that harasses him. And here's his response, though. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen to this. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's through the pain that Paul endures that he goes to the Lord persistently in prayer. And it's through the Lord's working and an awareness that the Lord still works in the midst of his weakness, of Paul's own mortality that leads him to say, for when I am weak, then you are strong. You have given me a sufficient calling to be your ambassador, even in chains, even when I'm weak. The Lord works pain in our life in ways that none of us would ever draw them up. 
Certainly the psalmist doesn't ask for it, correct? And Psalm 119 isn't about him asking, God, my life is too comfortable. My life is, is too in a sweet spot. Would you please bring adversity in my life? Would you send people after me to chase me, to try to kill me because I'm walking in your ways? The psalmist never prays that. But the whole psalm, this alphabet of prayers, is about the psalmist praying for deliverance. He is persistent in prayer for deliverance. So we can say with confidence in our lives as well, even though we don't know the fullness of the why, even though we know the what. We know the Lord is crafting us into a people for His own good and His own glory, dependent upon Him, to know Him intimately. That as we go to Him persistently in prayer through hardship, through pain, that He is our great deliverer. Even when we don't know it in that moment, He will deliver us. He says in 155, salvation is far from the wicked. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. He makes five different imperatives here. He gives five different, do you notice those? Five different statements. Look what he says. 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I did not forget your law. Plead my cause, redeem me, and give me life according to your promise. The psalmist speaks as a man who knows the Lord. He knows the one, the maker of heavens and earth. If he knows the one who made the heavens and the earth, then he knows the one who still loves him and knows him in the middle of his trial, in the middle of his testing, and he asks for him to redeem him. Do you see that? He asks for him to redeem him. Plead my cause and redeem me. This is really unique. He's asking the Lord to be his advocate before the Lord. Like in a law case, he's asking the Lord to be his representative before the Lord. He's asking him to redeem her. He's, he's doing the same type thing of, that Boaz does in the book of Ruth. And we're not going to go there and read it, but you can just write down the book of Ruth. It's small. It can be read in a, in a short time. I believe we went through it uh, about a year and a half ago or so. You remember the story. Naomi and, and her daughters are in uh, Moab, and her, her husband and her daughter's husbands, they die tragically. And Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. And they go back to Bethlehem, but with no husband, with no man to, to be with them and to protect them. And the Lord sends, and, and, and Naomi says to Ruth, go out into the fields of Boaz and glean. And she goes, and the Lord in his great providence, and the story continues on through some details there, but the Lord brings Boaz to be her redeemer, this kinsman redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. And they go on and, and Ruth and Boaz have a son. And Obed goes and he becomes, and they, they go on and have a child and they have a child and it goes to David. And David becomes the forerunner of Jesus. The Lord is in the business of working through pain a great, beautiful story of redemption. That in Christ we have a great Redeemer. And in Christ we see that He honors the prayers of His persistent people. He grows us through pain and a purpose of persistent prayer. In a way that we don't know the fullness that it's going to weave out. But we do know that He's good and that He works in us and desires us to seek Him persistently in prayer. This persistent prayer builds within us the second component that God works out in our lives through pain. And that's personal intimacy. 
there's a personal intimacy that God desires for each and every one of us. That we are known and can know Him in Christ. Look at the very last portion of every one of those verses. The second portion of of every verse, it reflects an intentional living in harmony with the Word. He knows the Lord, and so he knows who the Lord is. He knows what the Lord desires of his life. Look at the steady, faithful, abiding in the Lord that is his rock. The psalmist doesn't grow through some sporadic emotionalism. He grows through a faithfulness of knowing the Lord who has made himself known in his word, and he's aiming in his life to walk consistently with the word of the Lord. And it's this steady walk consistent with the word of the Lord that shapes him into an intimate relationship with God. That's what our lives are about, is a relationship with God in Christ. Look at how he desires, in the end of verse 153, look how he views the Lord by his word. He says, for I did not forget your law. Give me life according to your promise. The end of 155 For they do not seek your statutes, comparing to him who who seeks the statutes of the Lord. 156, O Lord, give me life according to your rules. It is rather intuitive. How can you be close to someone if you don't know their words? Think of somebody that you know very well. Now in your mind, listen to their voice. What's their voice sound like? be a strange question to ask. What are some of the things that they say? What are some of the things you know if you told them because you know their character by their words, you know that they would respond in a certain way? You can think of the inflections that they would give at your statement, can't you? So too it is with the psalmist who knows the Lord by his word. He knows what he desires for him in his life. And he builds his life according to the word. The more we know each other, the more similar we tend to become. The more we know each other, the more we know each other's words, the more similar we tend to become. Think of a married couple, oftentimes married couples. The longer that they're together, the more they begin to dress alike. Have you seen that? Some of you are looking right now checking to see if you're guilty or not. Friends, even friend groups. You get a friend group together a small group or any group like that, and the longer they're together, the more they begin to pick up each other's cadences. Have you ever noticed that? I was with the staff a few weeks ago. We were eating lunch together, and I noticed that several of us were using the same sayings. We were just kind of, I was like, I've heard you make that statement and you make that same statement. We begin to speak alike. We begin to influence each other. I've heard pet owners begin to look like their dogs. That's true. That one may not be quite as excellent to use as the other two. But the goodness with the Lord, the more intimate we know the Lord, we're not influencing Him. It's a one-way influence. That's the exception. Praise God that He begins to influence us to look more and more like Him, even through pain. Perhaps even more so through pain. That's the greatness of God. This change is one-directional. We are conformed to His image, not He's conformed to our image. That's the beautiful gift of of, of who God is. The permanence of the Lord ensures that He is unchanging, that He is perfect in all His ways, all of His attributes. He's not divided into parts. Do you understand that? So God's not like 15% love, 19% holiness, 13% power, 12% knowledge. 
16% mercy, 14.5% grace. He's not some component. He is the fullness of his attributes, never lacking, never developing in that way. He's perfect and permanent in all of his ways. There's no growth with God. He is permanent and perfect. He's the perfect being. And by grace, through faith in Christ, we know him. And even through pain, as we grow in persistent prayer, we begin to grow more and more into his likeness. Personal intimacy with the Lord. The permanence of the Lord reminds us that he has a purpose for us in the face of pain. And secondly, 157 and 158. We see that the permanence of the Lord reminds us to persevere in the face of persecution. To persevere in the face of persecution. 157 and 158. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. The ability to provoke a response is a desire to exercise power. The ability to evoke a response is a desire to evoke power. Let me give you an example of this. In athletics, I don't know if you went to the SFA game last night, but in athletics, oftentimes people that compete against others will do this thing called smack talk. They'll talk smack. They'll, they'll, they'll try to insult or get into the mind of their opponents. Why do they do this? Why do they do this? It's intentional. You might have a guy or, or, or a lady who's just totally nice and kind, but on the court or on the field, all of a sudden they begin just saying horrible things to get into the mind of their opponent. Why do they want to get into the mind of their opponent? To distract them. To get their mind off their purpose desires. Because what will happen if they swerve from their purpose? They won't be successful in what they're trying to do. It's an exercise of power and ability to get into somebody's mind to swerve their purpose. The psalmist says, Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. He knows whether the adversary is desired or not, whether they're purposing in their life spiritually to say, We want to get into your mind to cause you to walk in sin or to disobey the word of your Lord, that's what they're doing. Because they're walking in life as though they're their own gods. Everyone has a Lord. The question, is it the true Lord, Yahweh, or is it a counterfeit God? And the adversaries of the psalmist are trying to get him to do what they're doing. This attempt to, to get him to swerve from their purposes his purposes, to swerve from the purpose of the Word, the covenant relationship he has with the Lord, the way of the Lord, to get him to swerve outside of that. And what will happen to that? It will lead him to be disgusted with himself. It will lead him to be disgusted with himself. Look what he says about it. 158. Look at 158. He says, I look at the faithless. This is how they're described. This is the adversaries, the persecutors, those who are against the word of the Lord, we're either walking by the word of the Lord or we're not walking by the word of the Lord. And he says, I look at the faithless. That's those described as, as living lawless lives outside of the word of God. He says, I look at the faithless with disgust. He's grossed out by the way that they're living. And he knows, even though he's tempted to want to take matters into his own hands, he knows if he does that, 
He will take it out of the Lord's hands. And he will soon be disgusted at himself because he has walked in that trial in a faithless way, even if the end of that trial is death. For the Christian, listen, for the Christian, for us, the ends never justifies the means. There is no idea of greater good philosophy for the Christian. Our lives are marked by walking in the way of the Word, the way of the Lord, the permanent Lord who is sovereign over all. Sin for our lives is never a justifiable route. A little wrong in our mind for a greater purpose is never justifiable before the Lord. The psalmist knows this as his life is possibly coming to an end. He refuses to cut corners in his faith. He is faithful to act and speak in a way that honors the all-powerful permanent Lord. So by definition, his, his life, if we see the opposite of this, if those that live outside the Word of God are called untrustworthy, faithless or treacherous, depending on your translation, then what should that mean for us practically as believers? We should desire to live trustworthy lives. Application then. If the qualifier of those that live outside of the Word of God is that they are faithless, that they are not trustworthy because they don't walk according to the permanent way of the Lord. For us who do rest in Christ, for us who do have our lives marked by the Word of the Lord and are aiming to walk consistently with the Lord, we should be understood, regardless of our personality type, we should be understood as people that are desiring trustworthy lives according to the Word of God. So practically speaking, as employees, non-Christians should want to hire us. As employees, we should be seen, whether they agree with our, with our morality and our ethics or not, they, we should be seen clearly as trustworthy. As business owners, likewise, we should be seen as above reproach in our habits and our actions. In every area, every area where we're tempted to cut corners, we should be seen as, no, they're trustworthy. Trustworthy. We should be seen as a people that live under the authority of a permanent, just judge. As students, we should be seen as people who, who live in a trustworthy life that treat others as though they're created in the image of God, that the permanent Lord leads us and sustains us, that we should look different, we should be trustworthy. Our teachers should be able to notice that in our lives and attentiveness in our practical lives. And as neighbors, our neighbors should know our names and they should feel a warmth they should know that we're trustworthy as we live in the grace we've received in Christ, even if you're a stage four introvert. The truth of God ought to impact our lives more and more and more. That means very practically asking God, what do you want me to do in this situation? How do you want me to treat my literal neighbor across the street? And how do you want me to treat my functional neighbor as I go through my life? To walk in that permanence will shape our lives more this week than it did last week. So Lord, make us aware of your permanence as you did for your psalmist here. So we notice first that the permanence of the Lord it reminds us that he has purpose for us in the face of pain. And we notice two components to that. Persistent in prayer and personal intimacy. 
We just saw that the permanence of the Lord reminds us to persevere in the face of persecution, no matter the temptation to cut corners. And finally, in 159 and 160, to love the Lord by His precepts. To love the Lord by His precepts is the only reasonable response to His permanent loyal love. 159 and 160. The psalmist, before I read 159, remember what we've read so far. Remember what we've read so far. Not just this strophe, but all that we've read so far. All the 158 verses that came before this. Dozens and dozens of times. We don't know that he wrote this in one sitting. Remember that. We don't know how long the psalmist took to write this. This could have been weeks or months or even years. But what we do know is that this man who knows the Lord, he knows the trials that he's facing very permanently. He has not been relieved of them yet. He's not bitter towards God. Look what he says about the word of the Lord. Even though he's walking and resting in the word of the Lord, his problems aren't going away. But look what he says in 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. In every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The permanence of the Lord allows us to see our temporary trials, even if temporary means the rest of our lives. It allows us to see them with a perspective that is of the permanent God. And very possibly in your life and in my life today as we sit here, there is a root of bitterness in your heart toward God for a season of your life or even a present season. What I'd ask you to do is I'd ask you to talk to the Lord about that. And to pray, Lord, would you help me to see you and to see my trial and to see my life and to see these burdens and scars I've had in my life. Would you help me to see them like how the psalmist sees them? Would you help me to say, consider how I love your precepts. Of you, the permanent Lord. Give me an eternal perspective in my present burdens. This word right here in 159, consider, is translated, it's the same Hebrew word back in 153 where it says look upon. It's the same Hebrew word. They just translated it differently because of the context. But he's asking the Lord, consider, look at, examine my life. What a statement. How bold is that statement? Think about that for a moment. He is asking the eternal God, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who knows his every thought and deed, he's asking him to examine his life. That's wild. That's like somebody standing before a judge and saying, hey, I know you declared me good to go, but why don't you take another look at the papers? You sure you don't want to review the evidence again? That's That's a crazy statement. But he says it because he truly loves the Lord. His life is marked. His love of the Lord. Listen, his love of the Lord, what we see. I need to hear this. His love of the Lord is not marked by what happens in his circumstances. His love of the Lord is in response to the covenant faithfulness of God. 
the grace he's already been given is sufficient for him to mark him in a life that loves the precepts of the Lord. The loyal love that exists from God for his covenant people is true and trustworthy and good regardless of our circumstances. That's what the permanence of the Lord, the truth of that theology, the right understanding of who the Lord is anchors the psalmist in an unbelievable storm where his life is literally being threatened because he chooses to walk in the way of the Lord. Precepts. Consider how I love your precepts. Precepts are marked by specific details that God gives us. Are you, no way you remember this, but early on, in the very first or second letter we walked through, we, we kind of spent time summarizing each of these eight or so words that are given for the Word of God. Precepts, testimonies, all those things. Word. Precepts was one of those, and precepts carries with it consistently through Psalm 119 uh, a definition of detailed instructions that are meant to be kept. Precepts, detailed instructions that are meant to be kept. And the psalmist says, I love your precepts. The pragmatist would look at the psalmist's life and say, hold on, you've been walking by the precepts of the Lord and look at your life. You're, you're going to die because you're living by the precepts of the Lord. The psalmist says, I love your precepts. Because he knows this life is not it. This life is not it. That same ethic walks through all the New Testament. This is not it. The permanent Lord will make all things right in His timing. But because we have access to the Lord, we can ask that He would make those things right even now on the earth while we walk. So the psalmist doesn't speak from a cockiness, but he speaks in a confidence that he knows the Lord in covenant relationship with Him. For us, we know the Lord in Christ today. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know the Lord in that way, you can know Him by turning and trusting in Jesus Christ to be your Savior and King. That's the goodness. And we become family in Christ. You become family with those around you those who have been adopted by faith in Christ. The psalmist says, I love your precepts. I love your precepts. In our lives, we want to have a contractor that builds our house according to the precepts of the architect. When we go to the mechanic, we want the mechanic to follow the precepts of, of how to give a safe vehicle correction. We don't want them pulling duct tape out. That's the last thing we want to see our mechanic working with. And our surgeon, right? We don't want our surgeon pulling the duct tape out. Go by the precepts of instruction of what we had ought to do. To abide in the perfect precepts of the Lord is simply for the Christian to practice a shadow of how we will be living and loving one another for eternity. Look at the very last verse. Look what he says. Why is this the case? Why can he love the Lord's precepts even when he may be near the end of his life because of this trial for walking in the precepts of the Lord? 
For the sum of the word of the Lord is truth. And he, as every one of his righteous rules, endure forever. It's the permanence of the Lord. And there in his word that stabilizes him in a world of shifting sand. God in all his attributes in his infinite, permanent, and perfectness leads us to rest this morning in the reality that his saving love is an infinite, permanent saving love. That his grace is an infinite and perfect, permanent grace. The mercy he's covered us in is an infinite, permanent, perfect mercy. In the totality of the attributes of God, we will rest and worship and abide in Him for all eternity. I wondered for a long time, honestly, early on in my faith, and I'm not a great singer. I love to sing and worship, but I'm not a great singer. I know this is shocking for you to hear that. But I remember wrestling with this idea of, wait, so in heaven we're going to spend like eternity singing? Like, I don't have any part in show choir. I don't want to do that. It would be the most embarrassing, scary thing of all time for me. Even today, let me preach for a couple hours. That's good with me. It's not good for you. It's good for me. But don't, let, don't make me sing a solo. That would be a nightmare. Can you imagine? So I'm thinking, in heaven, are we going to be like singing Forever, won't we get bored even if we're doing like our favorite thing? Won't heaven get boring? Timelessness, eternality. The permanence of the attributes and the fullness of the Lord. We will never cease growing in our understanding of the eternality and the permanence of the Lord. We will never run out of things to praise Him for. His praiseworthiness in His permanence of the fullness of His attributes will be never ending. Every moment greater than the previous moment, but every moment never lacking for what that moment is. Because God is so infinite and perfect in His permanent glory, we will spend eternity worshiping and praising and loving Him perfectly and loving our neighbors perfectly. The permanent Lord, as we walk in His glory, can you imagine that? We can't imagine that. All we can do is say, Lord, that sounds unbelievable. I love your precepts. Even in the trials of my life, I want to know you better and I want to be faithful to your word today because I'll be doing this for eternity. But one day you'll wipe away every tear. But until that day, find me faithful. Find us faithful, your people, for your glory and our goodness in Christ. That's resh. Not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Next steps. Is there a past, recent, or present pain in my life that I need to talk to the Lord about? It's a two-part question on the very first next step. Is there a past, a recent, or a present pain in my life that I need to talk to the Lord about? Or for you, maybe it's, it's for all of us, maybe it's to talk to the Lord again about. And the second part to that, though, is, is an outreach component. Is there someone in your life, as you pray about it, is there someone in your life that you can share that the Lord has been faithful to you in that burden? Maybe you've wrestled with trusting the Lord in it, but the Lord has been faithful to you in the middle of all of that. 
And you know that there's somebody in your life you can reach out to and, and to pray for an opportunity to share the Lord's faithfulness. The faithfulness of the permanent Lord in that temporary, though burdensome, trial. Talk to the Lord about that. See who he might put on your mind to do so. And secondly, to trust the Lord in his word, we must know his word. To trust the Lord in his word, we must know his word. And so this semester, how might you more intentionally, so in your household, how might your household more intentionally know the Lord in his word? And if you're in a household, whether it's roommates or a family, to talk to them, how might we more intentionally know the Lord? How might we seek to commit his word to memory? To apply his word faithfully? Because he is permanent and worthy of our lives. Let me pray for us before we stand and sing and worship. Oh Lord, you are good and just in all your ways. You're worthy of our life. You're worthy of our trust in this very moment. And we ask God, would your spirit, would he search our hearts and examine us, look closely in our lives, help us to see perhaps unrepentant sin, and help us to abide in you today. We thank you that you are permanent and good and never growing. You're, you're the fullness of all that you are. You're the perfect being. In you, we live and we move and we rest and we have our identity. Help us, God, to trust you, to grow in our love and longing to, to know you intimately and personally and to make you known in our lives, to be followers of you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you broke our bonds of sin and shame. This is truth. We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen.